I'm going to start in verse 23. Matthew 23, verse 23. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify. Some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel until the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And let's pray. Lord, again, we are glad for your word. Glad that we can read it together out loud this morning. And Lord, I just ask that you would just guide my thoughts and my words this morning. Um, I pray, Lord, that I would speak things that are helpful, um, speak things that are true. And Lord, that you would just work in each one of our hearts this morning that we would grow closer to you through this time. We pray this in Christ's name. So I've read, again, part that I covered last week. I was a little bit all over the place last week in some of what I said. I didn't finish some of my thoughts, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but i just looking at some of this passage and... Each time Jesus says, woe unto you, he calls them hypocrites. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when you're trying to talk to a lost person, 
in particular a lost person who has had anything to do with church, they will often point out that the church is full of hypocrites. And I'm glad that you're all here. <laughs> we are all hypocrites. We all know a life that God wants for us to live. And we proclaim with our mouth the things that we ought to do. And just like Apostle Paul in Romans 7, as he says, the things that I wish, the things that I know I ought to do are the things that I don't do, and the things that I know that I shouldn't do are the things that I keep doing. We do these things. We live a life that is contrary to what we profess that we ought to live. We are all hypocrites in that way. But it's the acknowledgement of that that's what God wants. It's not a, we're not going to have a perfect life where people can look at us like, oh, that person's got it all. We're never going to be that person. And so that's the objection people have to coming to church is because we're full of hypocrites. And, you know, you've probably heard it said, like, they still go to their football games and the rock concerts and whatever other events. And you think there's not hypocrites at those places? <laughs> of course there is. So it's just an excuse, of course. But we look at these things that Jesus names here. And in these verses, he, verse 25, he says that they were full of extortion and excess. And then down a couple of verses in verse 28, it says, but ye, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. It's like sin is just ruling in their hearts, even though outwardly they look like a, a good professing, we'll call it a Christian just for the sake of convenience there. So outwardly they appear righteous unto men. That's, that's what we largely talked about last week, is this idea of, is it us that he's talking to? Is, he, is Jesus pointing to you and me that we look righteous outwardly, but within, we've got a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. And we do have a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. When we get into this next part here, verse 29, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets, and ye garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So, they claim they wouldn't have been taking part in what was done. And we go back to the Old Testament, we can start reading through all these stories of the prophets and how they were treated and the response that they received from the people of Israel. And more often than not, they are being persecuted. <laughs> tortured, <laughs> abused, cast away, imprisoned. We think of Jeremiah cast into a dry well. 
that's full of mud in the bottom and he's stuck in the mud and that's where they've left him. And he gets pulled out of that later on. This is how they treated the prophets. And Jesus even points out that they would be guilty of the blood of, he says, all the way back to righteous Abel. Cain and Abel right out of the garden. And then to the blood of Zechariah. And we don't, there's, there's a statement here tells us how he died. We don't see that detail written in the Old Testament, but it's given here so we know that that's what happened. And they all knew that that's what happened. <clears throat> you slew, them, slew him between the temple and the altar. Because he's preaching against you, God's word. He's preaching, do you ever think about the circumstance around this stuff? The stuff that happens here, like this particular event happened between the temple and the altar. We're in church. And the preacher is preaching against the sin of the people. And they kill him. They kill him for preaching against them. These are the religious people. We, as people, don't like Someone telling us what's wrong with us, do we? <laughs> we none of us enjoys that. And we've talked about this before. Jesus will often say something nice or good about a person before addressing something negative that needs to be dealt with. Because he knows this about us. Is that we, we don't like and we respond very poorly when people try to correct us. When t someone tells us what, that we're wrong or that we need to change, we don't like that. And so he'll often say something nice. And that's how we get around that sometimes is you say something nice to a person that makes them feel good and then you tell them what's wrong. And it softens the blow a little bit. Um, Jesus isn't really doing that at this point. <laughs> He's well into the, there's a lot here and I just don't have time to, to, to soft pedal this. You need to hear it. And we need to hear Sometimes, some things that aren't nice to be heard. So, when we get to verse 33, Jesus very kindly calls them, Ye serpents, you generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And, this is nice, right? We're, he's talking to the religious leaders. Remember that. And he's pointing to them that with all this stuff, all the things that I pointed out, how are you going to escape the damnation of hell? He's talking about they killed the prophets. They are, and they proclaimed themselves to be the sons of of the people who killed the prophets. <laughs> and Jesus is using that. Verse 32 is, or we'll start in verse 31, and we back up there. It says, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them that killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. It's like, 
you're going to do the exact same thing that they did. And we know that they did. They killed Christ. They killed the Messiah within days of this discussion. They are exactly like the people that killed those prophets. How many people in churches would have got on board with that at that time? Had we been there when those things were taking place, would we have been part of that group that was yelling out, crucify him, crucify him? Because we wouldn't have wanted to have heard the things that he was saying against us, the way he was saying them against those people, right? We need to wonder about that sometimes. Where would we be standing at that moment? What happens next, though, is really where I want to put a little bit of focus, is what Jesus says from that moment. He says, wherefore. So, wherefore is referring us back to what he just said of how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore? Because you can't on your own escape the damnation of hell. Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men, and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. But what did he just say? Because, look at what they're doing. They're currently denying Christ. The actual Messiah is standing right in front of their faces, talking to them, telling them the truth. And they're denying the truth. They're rejecting him. And he says, even at that moment, because this denial is going to condemn you to hell, I'm still going to send you more. I am going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you wise men and scribes. I'm not giving up on you. <laughs> I'm going to give you another opportunity to respond to the gospel message. That's the grace of God, guys. Whatever we deserve is hell. We deserve the hell that these guys deserve. Our sin would condemn us to that. And even as we reject Christ in our day-to-day -day life, God keeps sending someone another messenger to come and try to reach us. And it took some of us longer than others, of course, to respond to that. But just think of God's grace. Like, literally, you have the Messiah. You have Christ standing in front of you and you're rejecting him, and he's still going to send more to give you more opportunity. Think about your family. Like, you're sitting here. I'm hoping that means that you've already responded to that you believed that message now but some of us are praying for family members that for years have rejected that we've tried to witness to various family members and they they turn their back on everything and they condemn us for what we believe and jesus says he's still going to send more he's going to give another opportunity and that's the grace that god has I'm going to look at 
I'm going to look at a bunch of scriptures this morning, but I'm going to go to Titus chapter 2, just for the moment. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, speaks of God's grace. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But it says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all all men. And we get into this conversation sometimes of um, John chapter 6 says, no man can come unto, the, unto me unless the Father draws him. And certainly that must be true if Christ said it. But he said some other things that make that not a limiting factor. When you get to, to John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's all. <laughs> and so there's no limit to God drawing or who God will draw to him. Um, you get into the discussion about the elect and is it just those who will be saved that get drawn. And that's not the message that I see through scripture. In fact, in this very, this very passage, as Jesus continues to talk, if we're back in Matthew 23, he continues on here. And then when he went to the first 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and sonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. It's a, I gave you the opportunity, I've given the invitation. As in that John 6, 44 word, says no man can come unless the father draw him there's never going to be an excuse that you didn't draw me there's not a single person alive who will ever come to God and say you didn't give me an opportunity he says I will draw all men unto myself and this is the point is that I would <laughs> I says, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. I called, I gathered, I wanted to bring you in, but you rejected me. That rejection is on us, and it's a choice that we have whether we respond to God drawing us or not. God will draw everybody. I think, just to address a couple of objections that I've heard over the, the years about that thought, and it's what about Pharaoh? Doesn't the Bible say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? 
Well, it certainly does, but maybe we need to look back there and read more than just the one verse or the couple of verses that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, because that's not the whole story. Exodus chapter 9. sent back to Egypt to free God's people from the land, from the bondage of Egypt. And we're dealing with Pharaoh and the plagues that God brought upon them and all these things. And throughout this passage, we have the statement repeated of Pharaoh's heart was hardened, which is what why there were so many plagues is because every time God did something he gave an opportunity so he sent a plague or he did an event it's like let my people go and he would do the thing to show God's power to give the reason look you need to do this but Pharaoh would his heart would be hardened and he would refuse to let the people go and so God would move to the next thing till we get ten plagues and it's not until the, the final one where Pharaoh finally releases them. But we're in chapter 9. We go to verse 34. Exodus 9, 34. And it says, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so, this put the onus on Pharaoh in this case. There's other times, and as you read through here, you'll see sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't specify whether it was him or God. And at other moments, it was God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. But in this specific case, it, was, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says he sinned yet more. If God prevents you from doing something, if God is the one who hardens your heart, is it? Are you guilty for not doing the thing? Mm. <laughs> well, I'll let you think about that. <laughs> if I can't respond because God prevented me from responding, am I guilty of not responding? Anyway, let's look at another passage that refers back to this in 1 Samuel. God did put the responsibility on Pharaoh. It said he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, right? God put the responsibility on Pharaoh. So 1 Samuel chapter 6 is going to refer back to the same story. And perhaps even to the same exact verse that we were just reading. So 1 Samuel 6, verse 6, says, Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts? So let's just stop for half a second. It says, 
Wherefore then do you harden your hearts? Right? You are doing the hardening. As the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, when he had wrought wonderfully among them, did they not let the people go and they departed? God put the responsibility on Pharaoh, not saying that he couldn't have done it, but that he hardened his own heart. And so when we look at, and in the gospel, sorry, in the book of Romans, we see God referring back to this in that God set up Pharaoh for the purpose of making a demonstration of him. But does that mean that God completely controlled every aspect of that and prevented Pharaoh from responding? It's not what it says. It says that Pharaoh hardened. Just God knows the response of our hearts. God, when we're looking at this passage, that Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, they're rejecting him right now. And he says, yet I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. I'm going to send you more people. So you're going to be all the more guilty. I'm going to give you more opportunity. But he, in the same verse, in the same breath, he also tells them what's going to happen to those people that get sent. He says, and some of them you're going to kill and crucify. Some of them you're going to scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Even though I'm sending you more people with more of that same message, you are still going to reject me. God can set up Pharaoh for his purpose, knowing that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart and reject that message. Jesus is giving these people all the more opportunity, and he knows they're still going to reject it. That's God's grace with people, is that he, even when he knows we're going to reject what he has for us, he still gives the opportunity. But when we get to this verse, we need to look at it from the other side. <laughs> it says, wherefore I send, this is Matthew 23, verse 34. Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Do you know who them is? That's us. We are the ones being sent to be the ones to be killed and crucified and scourged and persecuted from city to city. We're the ones. The, those who have believed the message are being sent back to those that have rejected God. To... Do you realize... I don't know if you can get your head around the fact that God who knows that those people are going to die rejecting him rejecting the message that he's sending us with to present to those people. And yet he's sending us anyway to be killed and tortured and persecuted. We, we wonder why we have some difficulties in life. <laughs> um, 
I get concerned. I said a while back, I, I was working on a guy's car that had uh, satellite radio, and I found a Joel Osteen station. And I just started listening to, just for the sake of curiosity, I started listening to Joel Osteen while I was driving the car back and forth and doing stuff. And well, that's a nice message. It's uplifting. It makes you feel good. But there's almost zero scripture in any of that message. And he, not once in his ministry, has ever told you that you are going to be these people who are being sent to the world to be killed and tortured and scourged and persecuted. That's not the message that you hear from the popular preachers, is it? That's not what they tell us. And so when Christians, when people come, and that's what the message you're listening to, is that all is going to be well and good, and we need to focus on God's promises of, of good for us. Well, there's some promises that we need to consider. Maybe we need to start claiming some of these other promises. And I'll just go to a couple of verses. John 16. This is hardly the first or the only time that Jesus has said something like, like this. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while am I with you. I am with you. Ye shall seek me, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. I don't know if I'm in the right spot. I'm not. Wrong verse. Sorry, guys. I can't read. Didn't work. There we go. John 16, verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So here's a nice promise that in him we will have peace. But, sorry, but we're going to be living in the world physically. And in the world, we're going to have tribulation. And that is just a statement of fact and truth from Christ. If we look a little further, um, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you know what came right before this? Is that for this thing, like uh, verse 7 says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, and he said, My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul, Paul who healed countless others, didn't have the faith to heal himself, to take away this messenger from Satan to buffet him. 
But he said God's grace was promised to be sufficient for his strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities. Do you glory in the weaknesses of your flesh? <laughs> in the pain and the suffering, the things that you're going through? Jacob, do you, do you, are you glorying in the vertigo <laughs> when you can hardly get out of bed in the morning? Do we glory in these things that God has given? No, we, we think that we ought to have this nice, easy life, that God is going to take away all these problems, but that's not really the promise that he's given to us. If we keep going, James, right after Hebrews, Hebrews, and then James chapter 1, says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. When problems come your way, we're supposed to count it joy. Do we count it joy when we have problems? That's what we're told to do. First Peter. Three verse four, First Peter three verse fourteen says, "But and if I suffer for righteousness' sake, sorry, if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of this terror, neither be troubled. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you should be happy. <laughs> when when you become the one that's persecuted for preaching about Christ." That should give you joy. <laughs> right? We should be happy when life gets hard because of our stand for Christ. It gives evidence that you're doing something right. If, if all goes well and easy in life as a Christian, maybe you should start considering whether you're truly a Christian because all of the promises in Scripture towards Christians, not all, but there's a, it's filled with promises that we will suffer tribulation and we're going to suffer persecution for his sake. I could go to many more passages. I'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, just my last one for this point. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. And this emphasizes that point that I just made. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Man, this is a hard religion to try to draw people into, isn't it? <laughs> if you're going to join us, get ready to suffer, because that's what we're here for. That's the message. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I don't know how you can get preachers who never once preach this message that there's going to be problems in life. If you're preaching that it's all roses and lollipops, it's, you're, you're in for either some disappointment or you're in the entire wrong religion there. But there is, there is there was even hope tied to some of these verses that I read, right? There's hope. It says, 
we can we can glory in these things and we can but there is there is certainly hope within Christianity and if this life was all there was to it and this was going to be the result of the message of you're going to suffer persecution if, for believing this wow what a what a disappointment right that would be a, a difficult how are we going to get converts into this religion, this belief system that promises persecution if this life was where it all ended? And this life can't be, that's not the end of the story. The hope that we have in Christ isn't in the things of this life. It's not in having wealth and, and health and whatever, like these, these good, nice, comfortable things. As North Americans, we're spoiled beyond belief. We don't experience real... The harshest persecution I received as a young adult was one time when my co-workers found out that I was a Christian. One time made fun of me. Um, we're down on Park Gate. I was doing security, and there's a dumpster full of phone books, and they opened it to the, the escort section and made some kind of joke about me being offended by this sin. Okay, well, they know what's sin. <laughs> but like that was the harshest persecution I had received as a Christian, was somebody made a joke about what I believe, the sin that I would reject as a Christian. Like, I went through a good portion of my life really well aware that this isn't reality for the majority of Christians, right? I'm not being whipped. I'm not being persecuted from city to city. I'm not being threatened with my life over this thing. And haven't yet suffered much worse than any of those things. I can't remember what the thing was, but it, was, it talked about people in the other countries, you go to different parts around the world, for preaching Christ, people lose their hands and their heads literally. They get imprisoned for long periods of time. They get tortured and beaten and starved, completely rejected from society. Today, this is what's happening to Christians around the world. And yet, they preach. Yet, they gather to to risk suffering these things that are going to happen to them if they get caught. And they're willing to have, they're willing to suffer these things. And yet you come to North America and we are afraid that somebody might reject what we have to say and so we just don't say, we don't preach the gospel to our coworkers because they might make fun of us. They might ridicule us over the foolishness of, and the unscientificness of our beliefs. Are we scared to have somebody disagree with the things that we say and to reject my beliefs and to make fun of what persecution we suffer, right? That's the worst thing that any of us is going to suffer from preaching the gospel is someone might say something that's not nice about us. <laughs> and yet, for the majority... It's harder to get Christians in North America to preach the gospel than it is for these ones that will actually suffer physically for it. 
there's something wrong over here. Our hope isn't in this life. It's in an eternity. It's in a, a, the forgiveness of my sin. I'm not subject to the wrath of God on my sin is where my hope lies. It's not in niceties of this life. Second Corinthians chapter 4. I won't go through all of these verses. You know what? Let's skip that one. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with what God has in store for us. That's why we don't. That's why those Christians in those other parts of the world are willing to suffer whatever it's going to cost them for the gospel. Because they, they understand that whatever happens to me here has nothing. There's no comparison between my suffering here and the glory that I'm going to see for all eternity. And they understand that. And that's the promise given to us. We get towards the end of this chapter, verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's our hope. We know that this stuff's going to happen and life can get miserable at times. We shouldn't be looking to get out of the suffering. We shouldn't be trying to avoid trouble in this life. There's more to it and we should be looking past this life. Our focus should be way beyond there. I had more to say about that, but I'll need to stop. We'll stop with that. Let's pray. Lord, I want us to understand the truth of your word. Um, the things that Christ himself taught that his followers would experience isn't a life without trouble. It is a life of trouble, of persecution, but it's a life with a hope of an eternal glory, Lord, and that there is no comparison. And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, to be willing to suffer for your sake, and to put our hope in that future, in that eternal glory that you have waiting for us, Lord. So help us, Lord, to understand these things and help us to put our faith 
where it belongs in Christ. I pray in Christ's name.